The Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, I, Tom! <laughs> I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Tom, easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, oh, oh, that's a very good question. Uh, hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. And welcome back, everybody, as we roll into the second hour of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. We're going to shift gears and talk a little bit about uh, food security and uh, humanitarian needs around the country and how they're being impacted by what's happening in Ukraine. And we have uh, an excellent guest to uh, address all of that. He is... um, former UN Undersecretary General for Humanitarian Affairs, a distinguished fellow at the Center for Global Development and author of the upcoming book, Relief Chief, a Manifesto for Saving Lives in Dire Times. And uh, he joins me now by phone. His name is Mark Lokok. Mark, welcome to the show. Good morning, sir. Good morning to you. It's great to be with you. Um, Mark, How does helping the people in Ukraine, which a lot of people around the country and around the globe are willing and in some cases anxious to do, how does that negatively impact other humanitarian efforts? Well, I think helping the people of Ukraine is exactly the right thing to do, and it doesn't have to negatively impact anything else at all. The way in which it might do, though, is if help we are all giving to the people of Ukraine is instead of help we were giving or might have given to starving people in countries like Afghanistan and Yemen and Somalia and a whole range of other countries where even before the Ukraine invasion, there were millions of people right on the cusp of starvation and lots of help was being given to them. And the danger now is that stops, which will lead those people to losing their lives because we're so focused on Ukraine. How is um, aid... How is aid handled? Is it like what we've seen with Ukraine and, and Congress doling out uh, uh, bill packages? Or are there agencies within uh, various uh, nations around the world that have money already set aside to help? So the job I was doing at the United Nations for four years, which I talked about, as you say in my book, Relief Chief, which is about to come out, was trying to coordinate all of those efforts. There are non-profits in many countries, especially Western countries, which many of us like to contribute to. It might be um, church groups like CARE or CRS. It might be groups like Oxfam. Many of us contribute to those. Then there are 
shared international organizations from the United Nations. 106, 196 countries belong to the UN. They have organizations like the World Food Programme, which is now run by the ex-governor of South Carolina, my good friend David Beasley. Then there's UNICEF, which is run by another very distinguished American. Those organizations help too. And then around the world, there is the Red Cross movement. Every country has its national Red Cross, and they work together to help each other when other countries uh, are in trouble. So all of those things build up, um, and they the idea, what what happens in practice is when they when a, a country which can't cope with a big disaster needs help that group of institutions comes together normally with a with money which comes partly from individuals like you and me and partly from governments and try to provide you know a joined up um program of assistance to save the lives of the people caught out in this latest latest disaster that's basically how the system has evolved over the decades. You know, there, for a lot of people in the United States, Mark, um, there's there's sort of this impression, and, and some people think of it with great pride while others think we're maybe being foolish, that, that somehow America is the place that, that everybody goes when they need help, when they need food, when they need money, when they need arms, when they need protection. And for for many, America has been the lead for many decades in the uh, through most of the 20th century, I would be willing to speculate. But is it falling short? in current times well it is so the u.s is the leader in lots of this area and of course yeah, you have Mark, a very large I, economy i didn't ask that question very well but i think you picked up on what i mean yes and, and um so let me talk a bit about the issues that you yeah, identify please, there please. Um, so firstly um the u.s is a large country with a large economy and a tradition of providing help to others. Other countries do that too. And there's different ways of measuring how generous each is. So many European countries provide something like 0.7%. So uh, seven, um, seven cents in every $10, if you like, that's one way of thinking about it, of their whole income to help other countries in this, in that way. The US doesn't do quite as much as that. For the US, it's about uh, 0.2%. However, the U.S. is way ahead of other countries in the bit of this work of helping um, impoverished nations, which is to do with responding to emergencies. The U.S. Is, is really the leader in that. So when it comes to the United Nations organizations, for example, like the World Food Program and or UNICEF, the U.S. accounts for 30 or 40% of the money they get. In, international NGOs often get funded by the taxpayers and uh, individual citizens and governments in the countries they come from. Um, and so different countries contribute in different ways through their, their private contributions as well. So um, it is true that Western countries take the biggest role and probably other countries which could afford to do more like those in the Middle East, like some in East Asia should do more. Um, but it's not the case that um, it's just the U.S. Um, others play their play their part as well. 
What are the best ways to provide relief to countries that are struggling? Well, the, you know, every year through that group of organizations I talked about, the UN agencies, the non-profits or NGOs, as some people call them, and the Red Cross, something like 100 million people around the world get provided help in famines or after floods or after earthquakes or because they fled from war. And millions and millions of lives are saved by that. And um, that is a feature of the fact that, um, you know, compared to when I was born, I'm about to be 60 years old, um, at that time when, when, when I was born, Many people around the world, most people around the world, lived, lived lives of extreme poverty and suffering and also lives that were very short. Life expectancy was about half what it is now in many countries. People were hungry, their children never went to school, they watched their kids die in infancy and so on. Now, over the last 50 years, there's been a huge change in that. It's not more than half of the world's population now in that situation. It's less than 10%. And one of the reasons for that is because when these disasters strike, there's much better help to save lives. And that's what these humanitarian agencies do. And there's, you know, if, if you and your listeners and I are watching these problems and think about what we want to do about them, there's a number of different things we can do. We can talk to our elected representatives because governments typically play an important role. We can give money ourselves to... Um, our preferred not-profit. And the trick there is to pick an organization who have a good track record of acting professionally and genuinely reaching people in need. And there are many organizations in that space. So this is a system that works, that saves millions of lives. It's actually quite cheap to save a life in this way. You can feed a starving child in Yemen for 30 cents a day. Um, and there's lots of ways you can contribute. With the, um, is it just me, Mark, or does it seem that the pandemic has disrupted everyday operations that could have an impact on our ability and maybe other countries as well to provide humanitarian aid? Yes. What, what has been happening over the last five to eight years has been that that rate of progress I was talking about, about the, the number of people around the world who are suffering the most extreme poverty have been coming down and down and down, decade after decade after decade. That progress has been slowing down, even before Putin did what he's done in Ukraine. And the reason for that slowdown is to do with the three Cs. Conflict, there's been growing conflict in the Middle East and parts of Africa. Climate change, there's more droughts and severe storms which are um, hindering the ability of people who are reliant on farming, particularly subsistence farming, to make a living, and then COVID, the pandemic, as you say, that the effect of the pandemic on the poorest countries has been to really crunch their economies, and they weren't able to cope with that in the way it was possible for better-off countries uh, to do by pumping liquidity in the economy and so on. So... The poorest countries have been under huge strain. Then Putin comes along, invades Ukraine. Ukraine and Russia are huge grain exporters. So the price of grain is going through the roof. 
And those countries, many poor countries, which need to import get grain, are both struggling to find enough to import and struggling to pay the higher prices. And that's true with oil out of Russia as well because of uh, reaction to Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Exactly. And it's true also of fertilizer. So there's, there's a short-term effect of you know, there's enough grain in Ukraine silos along the ports of the Black Sea to feed 400 million people. One of the reasons the prices have gone up is because Putin's not letting that grain out. But there's also a medium-run effect because um, the fertilizer is less available, getting more expensive, and transport costs are going through the roof because of the um, because of what you as you just said, the oil price. The um, well, actually, let me let me do this, Mark. Um, we have a break coming up here in a couple of minutes, um, and and I want to talk some more about this, Mark. Can you stick around for a little bit so we can talk some more? Sure. Okay. My guest is Mark Lowcock. He is the uh, former UN Under Secretary General for Humanitarian Affairs. He has a uh, new book coming out, Relief Chief, a Manifesto for Saving Lives in Dire Times. And um, we're going to talk some more about that in a little bit. And I also want to remind you that here in Michigan, we had a big uh, development yesterday when the uh, Board of State canvassers took five out of the ten GOP candidates for governor in Michigan uh, in this uh, upcoming primary and knocked him off the ballot because of uh, uh, problems with petitions. And it's uh, become a bit of a scandal because of the way the, the petition signatures were being collected and how the, uh, the agencies, both the, the Michigan Bureau of Elections and the Board of State Canvassers, have um, uh, reviewed those petitions and and made their decision anyway five out of the ten um, have been knocked out and I had a chance to talk with a couple of them that have been blocked from the ballot and we're going to hear from Michigan State Police uh, Captain um, Mike Brown will be uh, joining me not in the next segment but toward the end of this hour and uh, we heard earlier from Michael Markey. Um, another interesting uh, development there, and and uh, I talked with uh, both candidates about it, was that the uh, Detroit Chamber of Commerce that hosts the Mackinac Policy Conference every year on Mackinac Island had set up a gubernatorial debate, and they selected five candidates to participate, which is almost unheard of. So you'll get to hear... Uh, Mike Brown's uh, response to that, and if you haven't heard uh, Mike Markey's uh, or Michael Markey's response to that, you can always go to our archive and uh, pull up the appropriate hour and and hear the hear those interviews. Anyway, we are going to take a short break. Let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. And then we're going to come back and talk some more about humanitarian needs and, and uh, 
his upcoming book with Mark Lowcock. We'll be right back. Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. you ever feel like you need an attitude adjustment? Are you wishing there was a magic pill or a new app for your mobile device? Why don't you try live local music? Music can make you dance, bring back fond memories, inspire you to be more creative whether you attend a child's school concert or recital, go to a local symphony concert, visit local bars and restaurants that feature dance music, sing-along piano, or jazz and blues. Music could be just what you're looking for. Supporting live local music is more than a way to support your local artists and economy. It's a great way to improve your own quality of life. Support live local music. This message is brought to you from the Tom General stuff? Listen, I have a legal question. What is it, Mom? I just got a call from the water company. Apparently, your father has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than a thousand dollars now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So, listen. We just have to send them $200 in Edible Arrangements gift cards, and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for Edible Arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam? Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. Okay, all right. And Dana, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now.
I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue our conversation about humanitarian efforts with former U.N. Relief Chief Mark Locock, and joins me by phone. Mark, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around, and sorry to make you sit through all that. No, good to listen. Um, Mark, I, you know, I was thinking during the break, you talked about how a lot of the countries that have benefited from the generosity of the U.S. and and other wealthy nations, that things were improving for them. Uh, Things are better than they were decades ago. There are more programs. uh, But I I, I couldn't help thinking about that that old adage, um, give a man a fish and and, uh, he eats for a day, teach him to fish, and he eats for a lifetime. How much of the efforts that we're putting into struggling nations is designed um, to help them become able to help themselves? So that's a great question. And the answer is about 90% of the efforts um, that you described go to do exactly that. And that has been very, that has been very successful. You know, um, it used to be the case that these countries would be um, plagued regularly by um, famines and huge loss of life through hunger. And in fact, in the, um, you know, as late as 1968, people like Paul Ehrlich um, were, he he published a book called The Population Bomb, and he predicted that those famines would get more and more um, common. And um, he, he, in fact, predicted that England, where I live, would cease to exist by 2000 because we, the country would be consumed by hunger. So that's been a huge problem in history. But what's happened is basically three things which um, have prevented those dire forecasts being true. The first is there's been this huge progress in food production around the world because of uh, new seeds and um, technology to deal with pests and harvesting and irrigation and storage and all those things. Martin Borlaug comes green. to mind. Yes, exactly. The Green Revolution. He was a genius and few people have made as big a contribution to him to improving humanity. The second thing that's happened, though, is not just more food being available, but more people having the money to be able to buy it. And that comes from economic development. As people have higher incomes, they don't have to grow their own food they have an income they can buy it and one of the big ways in which people have been able to get on that journey of um, moving from being given a fish to being a fisherman is because they've been able to educate their kids and get basic health care and get going and have built up incomes and can protect themselves much better but then there's that group of people who maybe get caught out in a disaster or haven't enjoyed those um, the benefits of that progress. And those are the people who are reliant on the 10% of that international support I talked about earlier, 90% going to um, solving problems in the longer term and 10% for, for immediate relief where the, the solutions haven't worked yet. And 
um, that work too has got increasingly effective. My first job was dealing with a famine in Ethiopia in the mid-1980s where a million people lost their lives. Since then, response efforts have got much better. And that's why even though problems occur, they're, they're dealt with better and they don't lead to mass loss of life through famine. Only one famine so far this century in which quarter of a million Somalis lost their lives in 2011. But the reason everyone's talking about this issue now is because as a result of the three C's I talked about, conflict, climate change, COVID, and now what Putin has done, there's a risk, as my friend David Beasley, the former governor of South Carolina, says, of famines coming back now in many countries. And that, that is the urgent problem we need to um, deal with. But how... I, I guess I'm having a, a tough time, and I imagine a lot of people are, because we see the headlines, we see the news, and and we see these shortages happening here in the U.S. We have a baby food shortage right now, and you mentioned grain is problematic uh, because of the situation in Ukraine, um, and and all of these these other things, shipping delays, and and all of this kind of stuff going on, but. How can you explain the the forces that cause these shutdowns when everything seems to be going fine and all of a sudden a single event seems to turn the world on its axis? Well, the the um, for many of the poorest countries, as I as we discussed earlier, yeah. they were in a very fragile position before Putin did what he has just done okay all of the all of the rest of us of course were seeing when we went to the grocery store prices were growing were going up and that become become a bigger problem for all of us i see it in my pocketbook maybe you do in yours of course but for the likes of us um the amount of our income we spend on food is quite a small proportion for people on the margins of survival they spend more than half of their income um, on food. So if the prices go up, that's a huge problem um, for them. Um, so that's the reason why what was, if you like, a bad situation is at risk of turning into a catastrophe. And so there's, there's, this is a solvable problem, but there's a few things that need to happen. Firstly, there's still plenty of food in the world to feed everybody, despite that. Um, those grain silos in, in Ukraine not being accessible because countries have stocks. Uh, so one thing that needs to happen is that the stockpiles will need to be allowed to come down a little bit over the course of the rest of this year um, while the second thing happens, which is countries that are able to grow more um, wheat and other grain, countries in North America, including the US, Australia, um, parts of South America, large parts of Europe, they adjust to the fact that, um, you know, there's less grain being being uh, available from, um, from Russia and Ukraine in particular. The next thing that needs to happen is that these countries which are right on the edge uh, and which are now struggling to afford grain for their populations on the international markets, they will need a bit of help from international institutions like the, the World Bank and IMF and so on. 
But then the last thing that needs to happen, and this is the most crucial thing to prevent this, what's, what's basically a problem turning into a disaster leading to millions and millions of people around the world starving to death, is that those humanitarian agencies will need more resources so that um, those people who have no means of survival except for the help they get given by the not-profit or the Red Cross or um, the UN's World Food Programme, that they have enough money to um, at least keep those people alive while we hope that things calm down and we can get back on a positive trajectory. Is that likely to happen? Do things ever calm down, Mark? Well, um, I... You know, I, I think that's a great question, and when I was... And I'm not trying to put you on the spot, Mark. No, no. But, but when you say something like, you know, when things calm down, and I'm trying to think of a time when things actually were calm. Well, um, so the way I think about this is yeah. is like this. I used to spend every working day, beginning of the working day when I was at the UN looking at the list of new disasters and earthquakes and floods and storms overnight and whether we're going to have to do something about them. <laughs> Most but of us can't imagine also, that, Mark. Well, so the, so the thought that I hung on to is that I had experienced over the last, over the previous 30 years of my working life, how many, many countries, often in a way that's not very visible, had changed from being places where People were hungry all the time. They didn't see their kids going to school. There were no basic health services, so kids died of measles or other preventable diseases. Two being places where that wasn't the situation of the majority of the population, but the situation of less than 10% of the population. So what I had seen is over those decades, actually for, for most people in many places, things were getting better. And so I hold on to that thought. We face a dire moment now but we know from the experience we've had over the last 30 or 40 years that things can get better. I agree with you that things in the moment always feel bumpy and complicated. So you do have to step back and look at the big picture and um, think about um, how maybe life was for our grandparents or our great-grandparents and how it's changed. Now, obviously, the images we see coming out of Ukraine are tragic and heart-wrenching. But is how big an impact is that event and, and the activities going on in Ukraine really having well, on the world overall? Yes. Um, it, it's appalling to see the brutality and the evil of what the Russians are doing in Ukraine. And they, they are flouting and violating on an industrial scale the laws of war in a way that we've not seen really since in, in many, many decades. Um, and of course, they, they present a real um, threat to Europe and the, the wider world in doing that. That said, it is, um, as you allude to in your question there, really important to recognize that the biggest impact in terms of where the loss of life will be greatest is probably not in Ukraine. It's probably in those places which were hoping to buy the grain in Ukraine silos and now can't get it. And, and, and um, 
and the fact that the aid agencies are having to divert their attention to Ukraine and so now can't focus on those those places. So it's countries like Afghanistan, Yemen, Somalia, large parts of that belt of the Sahara across Africa. Um, those are countries where if we're not um, paying attention and don't act in time, we could see something we've not seen on the planet for many decades, which is multiple famines taking the lives of millions and millions of people. Mark, and I that will be down to Putin. That will be on Putin. I, I want to ask you um, a little bit about climate change. And Oh, I just lost Mark. Well, hopefully he'll call back in a moment. Um, I've been talking with... Uh, and there he is. Let's see if I can get him right over to the board. Hi, Mark. Thanks for calling back. We lost you there for a moment. Mark, are you still there? I might have to disconnect and try us again. Yeah, it's just uh, I'm, I'm not hearing Mark's voice, so there must be something wrong with the connection. Mark, can you uh, disconnect and try one more time? Okay, that was Mark disconnecting. Mark Lowcock is a uh, former UN Undersecretary General for Humanitarian Affairs, a distinguished fellow at the Center for Global Development, and author of the forthcoming book, Relief Chief, a Manifesto for Saving Lives, in dire times and we've been talking about uh, the Ukraine crisis and the impact that that's having on food security and uh, a number of other efforts that uh, are designed to help with humanitarian aid hopefully Mark will uh, there he is let's try this once again Mark, are you back with us? Oh, hi, Tom. I don't know what happened. Can you hear me okay now? I can hear you just fine. I, that happens every once in a while where um, you can hear me and I can't hear you, and that seems to be what happened when you tried to call back. But I'm glad you called back because I was just about to ask about climate change, and this may have two or three parts to it, so you can riff on it uh, as, as you see fit. Um, how much of the threat of famine is um, likely to occur because of climate change and can politics and policy um, actually curb climate change and the changes that are being made by individuals, businesses, governments to combat climate change, is it having an impact that will put off um, the kinds of uh, tragedies like famine and, and other things that that we fear from climate change? Now that, right. that so, ought to give you something to work with, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, lots of issues there. And, and let me just touch on a couple of them. So firstly, it's a little bit of the famine threat is coming from climate change. So it's, it's making it um, 
a bit harder, but it's not the main reason we have all the problems we have. I, I remember three or four years ago going to um, Zimbabwe and Malawi and other countries in southern Africa and talking to farmers um, about their experience of how the weather, particularly rainfall and, and um, when the rain was occurring and in what volumes at different times of the year, had changed in their living memories. And I've heard that from farmers in lots of countries in Africa, um, and there's a good scientific basis now for understanding that that is a consequence of climate change. Um, and that's a problem if you're reliant on regular rain during your um, grain harvesting um, and growing season. It's not a problem if you have irrigation or you're not reliant on um, growing your own food because you've got other, um, you know, meet other parts to your economy and so on. So the, what, what a lot of countries in um, Africa in particular are going to have to do is diversify the livelihoods available to their populations because um, as the climate becomes more variable, there's more and more stresses on environmental resources. People are competing for water, they're competing for pasture land for their animals and so on. And in many countries, the population is growing. And the only way in the long term people are going to be able to get by is to develop in the way that's happened over the last 100, 150 years in North America, Europe, and most other parts of the world. So that's, that's the first thing. The second thing is, unfortunately, the countries where the impact of variable um, climate is greatest are in many cases the ones um, already most vulnerable to um, uh, droughts and those kinds of problems. What we see right now in, in East Africa, the countries of Kenya, Ethiopia, Somalia in particular, is a severe drought, which means that lots of people who are entirely reliant on pasture for their livestock, uh, which depends on the rain, or on rainfall for the crops they planted, have not had harvests for several seasons. And those people are entirely um, destitute. So these these climate change problems uh, are much more manageable in richer countries with more diverse economies than they are in very vulnerable, fragile countries where most people are reliant on rain-fed agricultural livestock. Mark, I hope you'll bear with me on this. I have this phrase written in, er, in my notes and I have no idea what it means or what it's referring to, and perhaps you can explain it to me and the listeners. And it simply says, the biggest explosion in humanitarian need in modern history. What is that? What is that referring to? Well, the, the United Nations every year makes a projection of the number of people who will need humanitarian assistance if they're to survive, because they're caught up in events like the war in Ukraine or um, civil war in Yemen or their um, economies have been undermined by the COVID pandemic or um, maybe they're, they're victims of um, droughts or extreme storms. And so the United Nations gathers with help from lots of countries around the world. The U.S. has a lot of scientific capability in this area. And adds the numbers up every year. And when I was first at the um, UN in 2017, 
we thought the um, number of people in need of assistance around the world would be about 100 million people that year um, out of a population of 7 billion. So, you know, a very small percentage, but still 100 million people. That 100 million figure has grown and grown and grown over the last four or five years, and it's now up to something like 300 million. And the reason is the combination of the cumulative effect of conflicts in lots of places, climate change, the COVID pandemic, and now um, the, um, what, what Putin has done in Ukraine. So that's what people mean when they talk about this explosion in need. It is the reversal of decades of progress of reducing this problem. And um, the reason it's happening is because although the humanitarian agencies do a good job in saving people's lives, the causes of the deterioration are not being dealt with. What's being dealt with is the symptoms, not the causes. Is um, population growth a contributing factor? Well, um, yes and no is the answer. So um, when I was born in 1960, there were three billion people on the planet. And most of them, one and a half billion, lived in very, very extreme poverty. Now there's seven and a half billion people in the planet on the planet, and 90% of them, more than, um, more than six and a half billion, um, live much better lives than human beings used to. So it's possible to cope with a growing population by diversifying your economy and by developing. A growing population does not have to be a recipe for immiseration. So Paul Ehrlich, in his, his book, The Population Bomb, saying that population growth would be the cause of the end of humanity turned out to be wrong. However, there are some countries under very, very acute um, economic and related strains, particularly across the belt of the Sahara um, of Africa, where population growth is absolutely adding to the challenges they face. Um, more and more people competing over limited water and pasture resources, more kids to be accommodated in school, um, more health services needed. And the population is growing, but the economy is not growing alongside it. And that is um, something that, that hasn't happened in most of the world over recent decades. Generally, population growth has been accompanied by economic growth, but we're not seeing that in some countries now. My guest is uh, Mark Lowcock, the uh, former UN Undersecretary General for Humanitarian Affairs and author of Relief Chief, a Manifesto for Saving Lives in Dire Times. Mark, it has been an honor and a privilege to have you share your expertise with me and the listeners this morning. We're out of time, but I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website that you'd like to share? Well, I, I, have, I work for a fantastic think tank in Washington, D.C. called the Center for Global Development. And CGDEV, if you put those into your search engine, you will find the work that this great think tank does. And you can find details of um, me and my book on there as well if you'd like to learn more. Well, Mark, thanks again and keep up the good work. Great to talk to you. Have a good day. All right. Take care.
And uh, we're going to take a short break, but when we come back, we're going to talk to another of the GOP candidates who got booted from the ballot yesterday, um, although he dropped out of the race Tuesday, and he'll talk about that coming up right after this break. Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. Cloth or disposable? Paint or wallpaper? Yellow or green? Babies come with lots of decisions. Crib or bassinet, rocker or glider. So when it comes to protection against diseases, go with the safest, most effective choice, vaccination. To protect your child against 14 serious childhood diseases like measles, meningitis, and whooping cough. That's why nearly all parents choose it. Stroller or carriage, basketball or soccer. So get all the recommended vaccinations for your baby by age two. For more reasons to vaccinate, talk to your child's doctor. Go to cdc.gov slash vaccines or call 800-CDC-INFO. Justin or Justine. Immunizations help give you the power to protect your baby. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Hey, why are we stopping? We're going to be late for the show. Mom, Dad, we got to get gas. Not here, you're not. This place is charging an arm and a leg. Look, these days, price swings of 30 or 40 cents per gallon aren't unusual. But when a gas station charges a price way above the price at similar stations, that could be gas gouging. Michigan gas stations sell the correct quality and quantity of gas most of the time. 
But when a station does try to illegally take advantage of drivers, my office is here to stop them. Stop Attorney Generaling! We got a concert to get to! I hope she doesn't sit next to us. Narc. This is Attorney General Dana Nessel. If you have information about potential gas gouging, call my office or go online at michigan.gov slash ag. Put those away. We're at a gas station. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. And welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program, and uh, most people should know by now that the uh, Michigan uh, uh, Elections Board and then uh, had recommended that five of the ten GOP uh, candidates for governor in Michigan um, be kicked off the ballot, basically. And yesterday, the uh, Michigan Board of um, canvassers, state canvassers, uh, which is made up of two Democrats and two Republicans, deadlocked two to two on each vote, which means that the five, uh, Michael Markey, Detroit Police Chief James Craig, uh, businesswoman uh, Donna Brandenburg, Perry Johnson, and former Michigan State Police Captain Michael Brown are all rendered ineligible. And uh, I had Mike Brown was scheduled to be uh, one of the candidates to be interviewed in our long format uh, this past Wednesday. And um, he ended up dropping out of the race over this. And uh, But he agreed to spend a few minutes with us and, and give his reaction to this whole petition debacle. And he joins me now by phone, Mike Brown. Mike, welcome to the show. And, and sorry about what happened, but can you make any sense out of what happened? Well, good morning, Tom. Uh, good morning, viewers. Uh, first of all, I uh, just want to correct something right at the start. I'm not a former state police captain. I'm still working. I wondered so about I that when I said it, Mike, and my apologies. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, that's been made before, but uh, I just want to correct that for the viewers so they know my perspective on this. So, uh, no, that was uh, news that uh, uh, was shocking to, to my campaign, Uh we had not heard anything from the Secretary of State since April 12th. Uh, they, they let the campaign know. How did you uh, find 12th. out, Mike? Well, let me back up a second. Yeah, sure. April 12th, April 12th they, they said they would contact the campaign if they had any issues with the signatures. Uh, zero contact with the Secretary of State since then. So I found out by an email Monday night at uh, 8.09 uh, p.m. I was in the Upper Peninsula campaigning. So it was a shocking to the campaign, and certainly uh, I will never sign up for any uh, fraud uh, in my campaign, so I had to make the painful decision uh, looking at the information that uh, was there, that uh, there was no way I was going to be associated with that. So uh, painfully, I had to uh, end my campaign for governor, but I, I will never sign up for any alleged fraud, and I can, I can explain what I think happened uh, in that. Yeah, because I'm sure a lot of people are are curious. And when I first read the report, and uh, well, let me back up and re-ask the question I asked uh, a couple of minutes ago. Um, how did you find out? Was it the free press story? <clears throat> no, I, I received a call from a uh, 
on a radio reporter Monday night. I was at, actually in a, at an event, and and then an email came through from the Secretary of State saying that a number of my signatures were disqualified uh, because of uh, fraudulent circulators, which uh, had done a number of uh, alleged fraud on other campaigns. So that transferred to my campaign. Uh, so, but I, I'm 100% confident that the work that we submitted, which was earlier than other campaigns, was 100% legitimate. Uh, and then the fraud happened on other campaigns in that last 30 days of scrambling for other campaigns for signatures when they were throwing around some big money. I, I think you've already sort of explained um, why you didn't want to hang in there and, and fight the decision because even from the initial reporting, Mike, it looks like um, shortcuts were taken in disqualifying uh, signatures. You know, whole sheets were thrown out if any were found to be fraudulent or duplicates or, or uh, in violation of the of the rules in any event let me let me ask this um, is is there a flaw in the in the qualification petition process to begin with no everyone knows the rules going in I knew the rules going in you needed 15,000 valid signatures and X amount in half the congressional districts so I mean we submitted almost 21,000 signatures between volunteers Mike, is it only uh, half the congressional districts? I thought it was all of them. No, it's half. You have to have hundred for a half. I don't. I don't know how they're measuring it now with thirteen congressional districts. So, but uh, it's uh, (laughs) half plus one, maybe. Yeah, who knows? Uh, But uh, everyone knew the rules going in, and that's what we uh, signed up for. So, but uh, the one thing that could be improved is uh, is uh, an ability to. electronically check uh, from the campaign side uh, every signature uh, from volunteers and any company you may employ. Well, it it seems like uh, professional signature gatherers were being used by most, if not all, of the campaigns. How did you get caught up into that how how did you end up inadvertently opening the door to this fraudulent activity in your campaign well that's an interesting question uh, uh we we uh had volunteer signatures and we employed a firm to uh work in uh kind of the metro metro detroit region i live uh, all the way on the southwest and we had volunteers over there also but it's pretty common for uh, big campaigns to employ uh, petition management companies or ballot initiatives. That's pretty common. Um, so, uh, you know, we employed that firm, but what I know happened is they completed a valid work for my campaign January, February, March. And then some of the same contractors went over to other campaigns that were paying big money and they cut corners on uh, a lot of the fraud that you see submitted. Uh, so that, uh, Unfortunately, transferred over to my campaign with those same independent contractors that worked for my campaign early, early in 2022. So it's a, it's a painful for all my supporters for me to have to make that decision uh, with the time they spent, uh, money, money contributed, uh, my eight months worth of work across the whole state. So 
tough decisions need to be made, but uh, I had to be de- decisive on that because I'm not going to be associated with any fraud, whether it was on other campaigns that transferred to mine, so I'm not going to do it. Mike, I had you scheduled to be on the show Wednesday, and on Tuesday when you dropped out of the race, you wrote to me right away, which I appreciate very much, by the way, and thank you for that, um, to let me know that you wanted to postpone that, that, you know, that that some things had changed. Um, And and then I had a chance on Wednesday to read your, um, your very eloquent, withdrawal from the campaign and i'll just read this one um you've already said this this morning i cannot and will not be associated with this activity um but mike does that mean you wouldn't consider trying again for statewide office or perhaps a a congressional seat or or some other elected position well one never knows Uh, life takes interesting turns but the campaign was going great (laughs) The campaign was really going great. People love my experience, my knowledge of Michigan, knowledge of the issues. So, Tom, I wrote that at 3 a.m. with no sleep. So, well, I, I thought it was I thought it was very eloquent, very heartfelt, and uh, and very matter of fact, and and very uh, transparent. Um, you said. Uh, uh, it appears that after my campaign signature gathering was complete, individuals independently contracted for a portion of our signature gathering and validation jumped onto other campaigns and went on a money grab. Um, this this is a, a, a very strange situation. It's unusual to have that many candidates um, running... Uh, for governor on on, on uh, one side of the aisle, the the GOP. Um, were you surprised at the uh, Detroit Chamber of Commerce uh, making a selection of only five to participate in a debate at the Mackinac Policy Conference? No, uh, I was actually going to go to the the island because I thought there'd be some changes in the debate lineup, and and uh, I have to email them today, uh, just thanking them for. Uh, offered me uh, a uh, to come on the island and talk to uh, a lot of their supporters, but uh, obviously I, I have to withdraw that. So, no, that's pretty standard practice. Uh, no, my campaign was going great. It was really uh, getting some momentum, and unfortunately uh, this, this situation occurred, so I just uh, feel horrible about it. And certainly it's, one, it's a tough time. Well, Mike, I appreciate you sharing your thoughts with me and the listeners this morning, and uh, I, I just I I wish you the best. I, I agree, your campaign was going very well, and uh, uh, all I can say is uh, keep up the good work. Well, thank you, sir, and uh, thank you for the invitation and the audience. Appreciate it. All right, take care. All right, bye. Bye. Once again, that was. Uh, Michigan State Police Captain Mike Brown, who is one of five GOP candidates kicked off uh, the ballot for this year's uh, election for Michigan governor. Um, he also kicked off the ballot. Um, uh, and and I, I want to add that, uh, that Mike Brown was scheduled to be on a show earlier this week, but on Tuesday he uh, withdrew from the race, said he didn't want to be involved with basically what was a tainted uh, petition-gathering process. Um, in any event, we're uh, 
the the other candidates that uh, are knocked off the ballot include Detroit Police Chief James Craig, Businesswoman Donna Brandenburg, uh, Perry Johnson, and um, Michael Markey. And uh, Michael Markey was also on the show reacting to this. Uh, he's among those that are pressing forward and going to sue to try and get uh, as as many signatures counted as possible. Anyway, I have to take a short Hi, break. I'm Alexander Zonjic. Don't Tom touch Sumner that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. The Tom 